You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. A couple of months ago, my wife and I went for a walk up our road. We do this all the time. But this time along the way, we stopped at our neighbor Harriet's house. You see, Harriet and her late husband purchased that house way back in the 1940s, and at nearly 103 years of age, she is still able to live there on her own. Now, Harriet's daughter just happened to be in town and mentioned to us that the previous owner of our house that's a guy named William or Bill Shine, had recently passed away. Naturally curious, I turned to the internet to find out more. I mean, who wouldn't? And just like there's more than one Steve Silverman in this world, it turns out there's also more than one William Shine. And it is one of those William Shines, in this case a dentist named William Vincent Shine, who is the subject of today's story. So let's take a quantum leap back in time to October 31st of 1959. The children of the Glenmore Gardens residential neighborhood, which is in Fremont, California, were doing what all kids love to do on Halloween. You know, they were dressed in their costumes and they went door to door in search of, you know what, candy. But as the children arrived home, some of the parents became quite alarmed to find little heart-shaped, sugar-coated, white pills at the bottom of the treat bags. The parents quickly concluded that the pills were being handed out by whoever lived at 4844 Norris Road, but of course they needed proof before they could call the police. So they decided to set a trap. They sent a few of the older children with empty treat bags and they went to the suspected house. There, a man and woman answered the door and gave each of the kids lollipops, and they sent them on their way. Of course, the bags were immediately inspected by the parents, and what did they find? More pills. At this point, the police were finally contacted, and 16 separate complaints were filed. So the officers went to Dr. Shine's home, and as you'd expect, he denied any involvement with the distribution of the pills. He wasn't charged with any crime at that point, mainly because the police weren't sure what the pills were. You know, maybe they really were candy, or, you know, maybe they weren't. It didn't take long for a laboratory analysis to determine that they were aloe pills, which were used mainly as a laxative at the time. They appeared to be manufactured by a pharmaceutical company and not the doctor himself. It was really hard to imagine how a man like William Shine could have done this. 
He had a successful practice and he was well respected by the community. And since he had moved into the house back in 1952 or 53, he was considered by the neighbors to be a quiet man with whom they had little interaction. But it was hard to avoid the evidence that was stacked up against him. The police had checked 250 homes and recovered, get this, 450 pills. The normal adult dose was two pills, yet the kids had received as many as 30 tablets in their bags. At least 16 children received the pills, with four being known to have suffered stomach cramps and vomiting. Luckily, the pills were so bitter that most of the children just spit them out and none required hospitalization. Within 24 hours of the uproar, the doctor had disappeared. He just vaporized. So an all-points bulletin was issued by Police Lieutenant Lowell Crichton. Now the dentist was wanted on two misdemeanor charges. The first was unlawfully dispensing a drug. And the second was outraging the public decency and endangering the health of children. If found guilty, the doctor could face up to one year in jail and a $1,000 fine. The police felt it was highly unlikely that Shine would skip town on two misdemeanor charges. You see, he had too much to lose. You know, he had an expensive house and an established medical practice that was loaded with costly dental equipment. And then they received an anonymous inquiry regarding bail which had been set at $1,050, or about $8,600 today, so the police were fairly certain that he would show up shortly. The nurse at Dr. Shine's office reported receiving threatening phone calls. He had not been in the office since Halloween Day, and when asked when he would return, she replied, quote, I don't know when he's coming back. She continued, I canceled his appointments Monday and Tuesday. Then, on November 3rd, it was reported that an unknown woman had stopped by the house to pick up Dr. Shine's dog. Could this be the mysterious woman who had handed out treats with Dr. Shine that night? Hmm. So a Jane Doe warrant was issued for her arrest. The next day, 53-year-old Hazel Engelby, who was a nurse at the Livermore Veterans Hospital, was arrested by police and booked at the county's prison farm at Santa Rita. She'd been a good friend of Dr. Shine since the time that both were in the U.S. Army. Now, they may have had her, but Dr. Shine still eluded the police. And he was still nowhere to be found on November 5th. That's when Hazel was brought into the courtroom of Judge E.A. Quaresma and, of course, a battery of reporters. This story had spread nationwide. She was wearing a trim blue suit, and she received the same exact misdemeanor charges that had been given to Dr. Shine, and then she was released on the same $1,050 bail. Later that day, the police received a call from the wife of Rex F. Kimberling. She said that she received word from her husband that the dentist was on a planned elk hunting trip in the Bitterroot Mountain Range of Idaho. Kimberling's group had planned to fly up with the dentist, but Shine canceled the flight at the last moment and drove his car there instead. Kimberling said, quote, He's back in the woods and won't return for several days. I'll tell him he's wanted when he returns to camp. I doubt if he knows. 
Police Chief Richard Condon believed that the dentist was not aware of the charges against him. Fremont Police Inspector Lee Riemann commented, quote, It's a misdemeanor charge and we can't go out of state and extradite. It was reported on November 9th that he had left the hunting party and he was presumably on his way back to California by car. Late in the evening of the 11th, Shine finally surrendered to the police. But he made no statement and was quickly released on bail, but he was ordered to appear before the municipal court at 9.30 the very next morning. As he'd expect, the press made a beeline for his house, but he once again dropped out of sight. It was noted that the newspapers had piled up on the front porch of the house, and egg was still splattered on his garage door from Halloween. Both Dr. Shine and Ms. Engelby were hauled into court on November 20th. It also marked the first time that Judge Kresmer was required to wear a robe in court under a new state law. Both of the accused denied any involvement in the crime, claiming they had only handed out lollipops. Richard M. Kaplan, who was their attorney, introduced into evidence a letter that had been mailed from San Leandro that may have been written by another person who may have placed the pills in the trick-or-treat bags. He said, quote, This letter was obviously written by a person who dislikes children, and if you can find out who wrote it, you may find the person that really handed out the pills. Then it was announced on November 25th that the charges had been amended. They removed the phrase, menacing public health. This was agreed to because none of the children who had swallowed the pills were severely injured. A plea in the case was delayed until December 2nd, and as one would expect, both entered a plea of not guilty. They also requested a trial by jury. So the judge scheduled the trial to start on January 25th, but of course they never got that far. On January 23rd, the charge of illegally dispensing drugs was dropped. Shine then waived the scheduled jury trial to avoid subjecting, quote, innocent persons, which I assume is Ms. Engelby, to the ordeal of a lengthy trial. Shine was found guilty on the charge of outraging public decency, and he was scheduled to be sentenced at 1.30 p.m. on Monday. He was facing six months behind bars and a $500 fine. All of the charges were dropped against Ms. Engelby, and of course she was set free. On January 25th, Dr. Schein was given a four-month suspended jail sentence, two years probation, and a fine of $525. But his fight wasn't over. He then learned he was now facing possible punitive action from the State Board of Dental Examiners. They could choose to issue a reprimand, suspend him from practicing for a period of time, or, in the worst case, they could revoke his license permanently. Three days later, Attorney Kaplan filed a motion to appeal the dentist's conviction. He argued that insufficient evidence had been introduced during the trial to convict Dr. Shine of outraging the public decency. This is going to sound a little corny, but he argued that Dr. Shine's act wasn't public and it only became public after the newspapers picked up the story. As a result, there was no way he could have outraged the public decency until it ended up in the newspapers. The State Board of Dental Examiners opted to place the review of his case on hold until the final decision was issued by the courts. 
That came on May 5, 1961, when the Alameda County Appellate Court upheld the decision that Dr. Shine had outraged the public decency. Most likely because he feared the loss of his license, on February 17, 1961, Dr. Shine appeared before the dental panel reviewing his case and he offered his sincerest apology for what he had supposedly done. On February 25th, the dental board found him guilty of unbecoming conduct. They placed him on probation for a period of two years. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Dr. Shine managed to stay out of the news until November 1st of 1962. That is when it was announced that his wife Dorothy was suing him for divorce. The couple had been married on June 4th of 1941 in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and they separated in 1952. That's seven years before he pulled this awful Halloween prank. They had no children, and Mrs. Shine had since moved to New York City. She charged him with extreme cruelty and claimed that he had a large and lucrative practice. The next time Dr. Shine appeared in the press was on December 17, 1963. This time, he had been arrested at his dental office at 4880 Fremont Boulevard, and the charge was insurance fraud. He supposedly billed insurance companies for work he had never performed, and once again, he ended up in the courtroom of Judge E.A. Quaresma. He posted $1,650 bail and was released. On March 5, 1964, Dr. Shine pled not guilty to two counts of insurance fraud in front of Judge E. Lacara. On September 12th, he was given a six-month suspended sentence and placed on probation for one year. But if I'm interpreting what is said in the paper correctly, he had violated the conditions of his original probation and therefore was ordered to spend two months in the county jail. The U.S. Public Records Index shows that Dr. Shine continued to live at his Fremont residence long after the scandals died down. He passed away on November 2, 2007. That's 13 days shy of his 88th birthday in Honolulu, Hawaii. Useless? 
useful? I'll leave that for you to decide. Well, I don't know how you feel about it, but I kind of hope the bagpipe music didn't come from the Scotch plaid ice cream truck. Because that's the way Halloween ought to be. Lots of mysterious tapping at every window. Witches riding through the air. Spirits in every tree. I've already had a message from the Halloween spirits, Mr. Smith. Last night on my way down Rogers Road, a voice spoke to me suddenly out of nowhere. Honest? What did it say? Beware. If you don't give us a special treat on Halloween, we'll spirit your new set of 1847 Rogers Brothers away from you. Beware. Hey, now, there's a smart ghost if there ever was one. (laughs) You mean I have a smart son if there ever was one. He hasn't heard me raving about my new 1847 Rogers Brothers for nothing. Oh, nobody raves about 1847 Rogers Brothers for nothing. There are all kinds of good reasons for getting excited about it. 1847 is the finest silver plate in America, you know. No other silver plate in the world can match its beautiful features. Features like the exceptional height and depth of the pattern ornament and the extra luster, perfect weight and balance of each piece. Those are the features that make 1847 Rogers Brothers really more like solid silver. And don't forget the price of 1847 Rogers Brothers, Mr. Smith. Oh, impossible to forget that because it's so unusual. 1847 prices haven't gone up since 1945. Not a single penny. So, no matter how you look at it, 1847 Rogers Brothers is the silverware you want for your home. It's the best, the finest silver plate in America. Famous 1847 Rogers Brothers. That commercial for Rogers Brothers 1847 Sterling Silver is from the October 27, 1950 Ozzie and Harriet radio program. This particular episode was appropriately titled Halloween Party. The 1847 reference was just a marketing name to help evoke memories of old times and to capitalize on the growing taste for colonial revival-style silver that existed at the time. It also marked the date that the Rogers Brothers introduced its line of electroplated silver pieces. Rogers Brothers was a division of International Silver that was a conglomerate that formed back in 1898 to combine together 17 of the largest U.S. and Canadian silver manufacturers. Eventually, International Silver would control 70% of the U.S. silverware market. Sales of formal silverware started to decline by the 1970s, you know, as consumer tastes changed. I mean, who do you know who uses formal silverware today? That, coupled with the high silver prices and inexpensive Asian-made flatware, it forced international silver to diversify, and eventually they got out of the silver business. On March 20, 1981, the company abruptly shut down its last silver manufacturing and sold off the last remnants of its silver business in 1983. Now, the International Silver name continues today as a division of Lifetime Brands. That's the same company that makes Farberware, Mikasa, KitchenAid, Fallsgraph, and many other famous brands. So here's a Halloween question for you. You know, Halloween is all about costumes, fun, and of course, every kid's favorite, candy. Can you name the best-selling candy for Halloween in the United States? And to give you some help, here are the top five in alphabetical order. Hershey's Milk Chocolate, Kit Kats, M&M's, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, and Snickers. 
So which one of those five is the best selling? Well, I'll tell you the answer in a few minutes. In other news, here are a few stories that all occurred on Halloween day of years past. Back in 1921, New York City resident Eddie Caulfield decided to dress up as a man for Halloween. There's really nothing unusual about that now or then. So she borrowed her brother's shirt, a tall, stiff, detachable collar, which they wore back then, pants, and an overcoat to complete the costume. But as she set out along Broadway en route to her Halloween party, men started to follow her and soon a crowd gathered. Shortly after that, a patrolman was summoned and he arrested Miss Caulfield on the spot. Now, it's unclear what the charges were, but she was released the next day after spending the night under the supervision of a police matron. In our next story, on Halloween of 1936, 56-year-old Howard Law of Chicago stepped out to buy his wife a box of candy to celebrate the day. That was a really nice thing to do. But while he was gone, the police showed up at the couple's door to arrest him. It turns out that Howard Law had broken the law. His real name was Howard Folger, and he had tunneled out of the Jackson, Michigan Penitentiary way back in 1919. At the time of his escape, he had completed two years of a 10-20 to 20 year sentence for rape. During their 17-year marriage, he was able to keep his past hidden from his wife, so the news came as a terrible shock to her. Now He knew he had to go back, so he told his wife to go live with her brother. Lastly, the scandalous news broke back in 1949 that England's Princess Margaret had been seen smoking a cigarette at a Halloween charity ball in London. While the press made a big, big stink of this, King George and the Queen seemed totally unfazed by the news. In fact, most ordinary British citizens felt the same. I couldn't help but think that times have really changed. A puff of a cigarette may have caused a big stink back then, but no one would really care today. In comparison, I don't think anyone seemed to care when President Obama's daughter Malia was recently caught smoking pot. So let's get back to the question of the day. Did you know what the best-selling Halloween candy is? And here they are in reverse order. So the fifth most popular candy in the U.S. is Kit Kats. That's followed by Hershey's Milk Chocolate, then Snickers, then M&M's, which leaves Reese's Peanut Butter Cups as the most popular Halloween candy. It turns out that 72% of all Halloween candy sold is chocolate. And the best-selling non-chocolate candy is at number 6, that's Twizzlers, and that's followed by Starburst at number 7. Now, my favorite candy to get placed in my bag as a kid comes in at number 25, that's Whoppers. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. You can find additional true stories just like the one you heard on my website, that's uselessinformation.org, and of course, in the two books written by me, Steve Silverman. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. If you haven't done so, be sure to like the show on Facebook. You can do so by doing a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast there. It should pop up. And lastly, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or whatever podcast service you use, and you'll get automatic updates when a new episode is released. Anyway, I hope you have a great Halloween, and I thank you for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.